0: I just had this horrible feeling that I had my mic on the whole time. That wasn't on, was it? You did. Oh, man. Did you help me back there and cut it off? Oh. That was supposed to be Jimmy, not me, with the mic on. (laughs) Thank you. You you, you may never get a repeat performance, but uh, anyway. (laughs) Open your Bibles with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. We, we may not do this every Sunday, but I think as we kick off this new series for 1 Timothy, I, one, I want to encourage you to bring your Bibles with you. I know some of you use digital versions. Perfectly okay, just turn off all your notifications, you know how distracting that can be. But if possible, bring a hard copy. Man, it's just, I just love to hear the pages turn. Stand with me this morning for the reading of God's Word. First Timothy chapter 1. As so we begin this new series, Revive the Church, let's read our, our first passage. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good, if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. You may be seated. And let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We know that this book is a book from you, written through men, given for men, but even more for your glory May we understand it accurately this morning. I pray that our eyes would be opened, and more than just our eyes, I pray that our hearts would be open to hear what you think, what you say, what you command. God, help us to be the church that you created us to be, and that we would be known as a church that is a, a biblical church because we follow your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I would say to you this morning first, the church needs revival. For many years, I've been praying for revival. I remember a group of us would meet each day up in the seminary chapel in what was known as the upper room at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. And we would pray, God, give us revival. Now, to be transparent, I don't know that I fully understood what it really meant to pray for revival early on. But over the years as I've studied and as I've thought it through, I I think I'm I'm getting a clearer picture of what revival is. Nothing that we can manufacture, nothing that there's some kind of formula to, but I think we can describe it. And one person who has helped me quite a bit to understand what revival is is a man named Jonathan Edwards. Now, I did not grow up with Jonathan. He's from the mid-1700s, early 1700s, so I don't know him personally. But he was a part of what has, been, uh, has become known as the First Great Awakening. And sometimes we read some of the, we'll call them older guys, and commit what some people have called chronological snobbery. Like, what do those old guys have to say to us today? But the more I read these old guys, the more, I, man, God was speaking and moving and working. We have a lot to learn from them And so Jonathan Edwards, in the midst of the great awakening that was happening, lives were being changed and churches were growing, attendance was moving upward. So much was happening, he wrote a book called The Distinguishing Marks of Revival. And as we think about 1 Timothy, as we think about the the whole idea of revive to church, if we're going to understand revival first, I think Jonathan Edwards was right, we should understand what revival is not. And so I'm going to run through this kind of quickly, not give much commentary at all, and you can go back and think through these. But but he said revival is not, and he gave nine things. The work is carried on in an unusual or extraordinary way. Sometimes there are some things that just seem bigger than life that are happening. We think, well, surely that's God. Well, not always. He said. Second thing, there are bodily effects such as tears, trembling, groans, and again, sometimes we can attach emotion. People are being impacted. There are tears and people are feeling certain things. Well, that that's not revival. He said it results in a great deal of noise about religion. People began to talk more about it. Well, that that's not revival either. Great impressions, number four, great impressions are made on the imaginations of those who are influenced by it. I mean, they began to see things and whether we might even say hallucinations, but, but even things that are potentially possible and they begin to dream and that's not in of itself revival. And number five, the example of others is a great means of bringing it about. So if you'll do ABC, then you'll experience CDE. No, there, there's no formula. He said, number seven, there are many errors in judgment and even some delusions of Satan mixed up with the work. You see, even the devil can create a lot of motion and momentum and stuff that is unexplainable. He has limited, he has power, even though it's limited power, he has power. And then number eight, some who were thought to be converted shall fall away into serious errors of sins. Those who might be out in the forefront We see maybe by the fruit that there was nothing genuine that was actually happening. And then number nine, it's promoted by ministers insisting very much on the terrors of God's law. In other words, a lot of manipulation. People's minds, people's emotions. It's a man-made thing. And Jonathan Edwards was warning the people. This guy who was out front preaching the truth of God's word, experiencing some unusual things up in the New England area saying, but... Make sure what you're really experiencing is is revival and not a a lot of just man-made or even demonic activity. So he gives us five distinguishing marks of a work of the Spirit of God. How do we know if God's really doing a new, fresh thing here at Lawndale? How do we know that revival is really occurring? How How will we be able to mark that? Well, first, when the work is such as to raise the esteem, of professed converts for Jesus, and seems to establish their minds in the truth of the gospel testimony to Him as the Son of God and the Savior of men. In other words, when the church begins to focus more on Jesus than themselves, when the church begins to focus more on Jesus than in the world, the focus is rightly put on the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I I, I love that first distinguishing mark. The second one he gives us, when the spirit that is at work operates against the interest of Satan's kingdom, which lies in encouraging and establishing sin. See, even in the church, we can begin to believe the cultural ideas of sin. I, I, I can't tell you, you already know this. Churches that are dropping off of historic Orthodox Christianity. Revival would be churches saying, you know what, this is the word of God. And what sin we see, we call it sin and call people to repentance. Repentance. It ties into the third mark. When the Spirit operates to bring about a greater regard to the Scriptures and establishes them more in their truth and divine origin. So we began to see people repenting of their sin and turning to the Scriptures to be in the Word and to understand more about who God is, not to earn favor with God or more love from God, but to show more love to God to get to know Him better. That's when revival begins to break out. We began to see this is the Word of God from God to the people of God for the glory. of God and then fourthly when the spirit operates as a spirit of truth leading persons to the truth and convincing them of those things that are true becomes a collective agreement in the body of what really is truth from scripture we began to be united together in the truth not united together in our preferences that'll never happen not united together in some of our own opinions but the truth of God's word And then the fifth mark, when the spirit operates as a spirit of love to God and man, the greater our love grows for God. That's that's when revival takes place. When we begin to love God more than our sin, we love God more than our own preferences. We love God more than the world, and we love the people around us. Even though they might not agree with us, we love them. Revival takes place when people's hearts are changed in love for God and love for each other. So does the church need revival? I would say say yes. Leonard Ravenhill, about a half a century ago, listen to what he said about believers. I, I think it's interesting and maybe more applicable today than then. Perhaps God never had such a set of unbelieving believers as this present crop of Christians. How humiliating. As a leader in the church, he's saying... We're believers. That means we're supposed to believe. We put our faith in Christ, and we believe the Word of God. And oftentimes, we're so influenced by the world that we we don't even believe what God says. We we're, we're, we're deceived. R.C. Sproul is saying a little something more contemporary. He he's no longer with us, but more recently wrote, "The more at peace the church is with the world, the more worldly the church becomes." You know, we could, we could make everybody like us in the community if we would compromise here, if we would give in there. We, we, could, we could have everybody patting us on the back. Man, you guys, you do a lot of good stuff, and you don't judge anybody, and you know, all the kinds of things that the world puts so much value on, and, and yet we come back and we stand before God one day according to the Word of God, and that's who we ultimately give an account to. And I would say to you, I believe that we're less at peace, and we're going to be less at peace with what we believe with the world in the days to come. God is positioning the church for revival. So Timothy was operating in a pretty tough day. He had been commissioned by Paul to pastor of the church at Ephesus. He had been left there. He had been called there. He had been appointed to serve there. And it wasn't an easy work. There there were a lot of things that were happening. There were false teachings that were popping up. And just as our day, we see one church after another dropping the baton, the ball, with what is sound doctrine, it was happening within the very church that Timothy was pastoring, the church at Ephesus. So when you read this book and you get to where Paul says, this is why I'm writing to you, Timothy. This is what he says in chapter 3 in verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. You want to know what the church should believe, what the church should do, what it should be like? Well, we have it. God, God told Paul, who it was inspired to write these words down, and he gave them to Timothy, and God's intention was that his church for the generations to come would know what he thinks about the church. And so I could divide the letter up into three main points and say that chapter one is pretty much about the guardianship that God has given the church. He has entrusted the truth to the church and we are guardians of the truth. We, we know the source, God himself, he inspired... These men, to write these words down, and we are guardians. It has been passed down to us. And then when you move into chapters 2 and 3, you see the leadership of the church. You see roles. You see gender. You see elders, overseers, pastors, and you see deacons. God's saying that he has a design for leadership in the church. And then you move into chapters 4, 5, and 6, and it's about the fellowship of the church, how we operate together, how do we function, how do we serve, how do we move forward in carrying out this great commission that God has given us. And so let's start with this guardians of the truth. We are to guard the truth. As we do that, we have the foundation of truth. Look back with me in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, he he was set apart. He was sent to do the work of God as an apostle. We have the 12. One betrayed Jesus. They added to their number. And then down the road, God brought Paul in as an apostle who was born out of due season. He was added in later. Peter recognizes apostleship, and you read his letters, especially Second Peter. Peter was identifying Paul as a man who wrote scripture, as an apostle, the apostle Paul. And so what we find for the foundation of truth is it starts with apostleship. These men who were called out by Jesus, who were recognized by Jesus, even Paul was called out by Jesus. It was just on the road to Damascus instead of maybe being a fisherman by the sea. He was on the road to persecute more believers. And he had a face-to-face encounter with Jesus. The apostleship. That apostleship is all through the New Testament. Read in Ephesians 2 verse 20 that that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Even even earlier, uh, we can think about the role that the apostles were given in the early church. The early church, Acts 2, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Jesus gave the truth to the apostles. They were inspired by the Spirit to write it down so that we would have it. So the foundation of truth, it begins with the apostles. That's why we no longer have apostles. Uh, There's there's no new revelation. There's no new books that will be given. It's just this book we've been given, the Word of God, the Bible, in these 66 books. But that apostleship was passed down through discipleship. So it began with the apostles and it was passed down through discipleship. Paul discipled Timothy. That's why he called him my true child in the faith in verse 2. My true child in the faith. Now was it wasn't that Timothy had never heard about the truth. Thank God for godly grandmothers and mothers who teach the truth. Lois and Eunice who poured into him. Paul would say how from infancy in his second letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2 verse uh, 3 verse 15 and how from infancy or childhood you've known the scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation. So Timothy grew up learning about the truth and God brought Paul into his life to continue that discipling, that growth. And Paul was concerned about the next generation. So he was passing it down to Timothy and to Titus and others who traveled with him. And of course, that's, we're in that line. As we hold to the Scriptures, as we hold to the apostles' doctrine, that's what Jesus meant. Go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And so we all are a part of that discipleship process. Some of you uh, younger men and women, there's some older men and women in this sanctuary this morning that you should be lining up at their door saying, hey, can you spend some time with me? Because they've been walking with God for a long time. And they have wisdom, they have experience from successes and failures, but primarily from the study of God's Word to pass along. We, we should be that concerned I'm so thankful for godly parents in this congregation, men and women who are making disciples at home, teaching their children the truth of God. But I'm also also thankful for the men and women in this church, older men and women, who are consistently concerned about the next generation and who are encouraging, speaking, getting to know names and pouring into them. And of course, that's part of what this afternoon is all about at 5 o'clock is that we want to see young and old gather together to discuss the Word of God. And so we'll look at the text again and some of the pastors will share on some of the Sunday evenings. My wife will share with the women and and we'll do it biblically where the older men pour into the younger men and the older women pour into the younger women. So even even in a setting like this today, how tragic it would be, maybe not tragic, maybe so tragic, if you're an older person and you walk out and don't speak to a younger person this morning. Wouldn't that be sad? Or if you're a younger person and you walk out and you don't talk to an older person. You see, the church of all places should be united where not only mask and not only ethnicity doesn't divide us, but age doesn't divide us. We're we're one and we love each other. That's a part of discipleship, the foundation for truth. But we also see the truth doesn't just happen. There's a confrontation over truth and that's what Paul is saying to Timothy up front as I urged you, verse 3, when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. There were leaders in the church who were not following sound teaching. I don't know of anything more difficult than Timothy, this young pastor who was brought in to say, you got to make sure you clean that up. You've got to make sure that every person is sound in what they're communicating as leaders within the body of Christ. You see, we're we're the pillar and buttress of the truth. We, we've been given this. So, one, it means we need to know sound doctrine. Are we growing? Are we learning? Are we spending time in the Word? Are we understanding a biblical theology, what it says about God from Genesis to Revelation, what it says about the authority and inerrancy of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation? Are we studying what salvation is by grace through faith in Christ? Are we getting these basic foundational doctrines where we understand them, we hold to them, and we are able to communicate them to others? Paul told Timothy, confront over any different doctrine from sound doctrine. But even, as you notice in verse 4, Confront over what distracts from sound doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. We're stewards of the truth as a church, we're guardians, we're stewards. And there are certain things that are different doctrine that we say that's not acceptable. If we, if we were interviewing for one of our pastoral roles, we would be going over certain doctrines. And if there's a difference on basic core doctrine, that person would be eliminated from the conversation. We, we, we interview deacons, we interview teachers, we're looking for sound doctrine across the board because we know we've been entrusted with that. It's important to God and it's important to the church because it's important to Him. But there are things that distract, sometimes it's about style and sometimes it's about methodology, sometimes it's about times. Sometimes we're hypersensitive over preferences or opinions and I, I think that's some to do with what distracts us from sound doctrine. He said, don't let that get in the way. The, sometimes reading back in the Old Testament, it's easy to get caught up in some of the stuff that is important, but that we're not necessarily tied to. So if we get caught up in some of the rituals that Jesus fulfilled in his sacrifice, you know, we're 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 off base. We can get so caught up in some of the genealogies. Those are important because they show us the lineage of Christ. But But you see, they were having debates, and it was creating divisions and that was what that was not a part of the core doctrine of the church what's what's the aim here when it comes to sound doctrine isn't that interesting how he placed how he says that in verse 5 the aim of our charge that is to confront over different doctrine or what distracts from doctrine the aim of our charge is love the most loving thing we can do is give the truth If somebody believes something wrong, why would we not love them enough to tell them? If my kids are headed in the wrong direction, I want to love them enough to tell them. If I'm headed in the wrong direction, I want one of you to love me enough to come to me and ask me and talk to me about that. The aim of our charge is love. Now, what does happen sometimes is that because somebody might not agree with us, we can become mean-spirited, right? Even if I think they're wrong... I have no right to be mean-spirited and ugly. The aim of the charge is love. I, I like how um, Alistair Begg says this. Truth becomes hard if not softened by love. And love becomes soft if not strengthened by truth. It's both, isn't it? That's why we always repeat, speak the truth in love. Speak the truth, but do it in love. We come alongside of people. They're created in the image of God. We might not agree with them. That's why we say, you you might not be walking with God, but you're welcome to come to this place. We we want to love you. We want to show you the love of God. We may disagree on some things, uh, but we want you to to come. There may be some limitations on leadership, but we, we love people. We this this should be the most accepting, warm place in Greensboro. Whether someone's lost or saved, because the aim of the command is love, we, we, we want to help. We want to bring God's truth to people. Augustine, or at least this quote is attributed to him, in essentials, unity. There, there's no waffling. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. We give each other some space on things that may not be as clear, but in all things, charity. Doesn't matter where we are, we're going to love people. We're going to treat people with respect because every person is created in the image of God. So look in verse 7. This, uh, Well, let's back up to verse 6. I, I think this is interesting because certain, perp- certain persons, by swerving from these, that is, a pure heart, good conscience, and sincere faith, that is, we're, we're holding to what we know to be true with all of our hearts And and, and in good conscience and with sincere faith, this is what we believe to be true. We're holding. When we start moving away from what we know to be true and, and we start allowing our conscience to be seared, so to speak, that's what he's talking about. We begin to wander away. Certain persons, by swerving, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. I think as I studied this, this is one of those phrases that really stuck out to me this week that I don't think I've ever seen before. But isn't it true that somebody can be very strong about what they think and believe even if it's not right? Now, you can be strong and you can be wrong. Just because you're strong doesn't mean you're wrong. And I would say that for all of us, that We've got to come to the Word of God and say, this is the text that we're going by. I'm learning. I'm growing. We're searching the Scriptures. And we're seeing how this one book fits together in the story of God. Look on in verse 8. Let me give you the third point this morning, the protection. So we've seen the foundation for truth, the confrontation over truth, and now the protection of truth. Now, we know that the law is good. What God has given is good because God is good. He gave us the law so that we might know what he is like, how holy he is, and how we cannot ever live up to his holiness. And so the law points out our sin. It's a gracious gift from God to show us how to live, but to also show us why we need Jesus so much because we can't live up to the perfect holiness of God. The law is good if it is used lawfully. So we can do what is right because God has revealed it. We just should do the right thing in the right way. We should use the law lawfully, not as a legalistic hammer to beat people with, but as a gracious gift from God that we're we're truth bearers. We, we give the truth because the truth has been passed to us and we can do nothing less but than to pass it to others. Do the right things, but do them in the right way through love for God and love for others and do the right things in the right way for the right reason. Because we're obeying God. It's, it's, it's even more than I've got to make my opinion known. It's even more than this person needs me to tell the truth. It's I've been commanded to tell this truth. And so when you read through this, you get a list of things that God says are not in keeping with who he is. It's not in keeping with the way that he meant for life to be lived. And most of this he puts in pairs. But you see in verse 9, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. It brings back that, that thought of Jesus saying that he came not for the healthy, but for the sick. They, they just didn't know they were all sick. They all were sinners. They were all in need. And so the law was there for all of us. But then he gives the, the way that we're all condemned by the, the law. He, he says, uh, the lawless and disobedient and the ungodly and sinners for the unholy and profane. And so you see this general assertion that all are sinners and all are in need of the grace of God. And and then he gets a little bit more specific about some of these relationships for those who strike their fathers and mothers. Have we lived in a day that's any more disrespectful of parents with children and their parents, teenagers and their parents, and even adults with their parents? God's calling us back to honor your father and your mother. There should not be anything less than gentleness and love And honor that comes there for murderers, how we treat people with our words and even our actions, that ultimate way of hurting someone, taking a life. And then he talks about the sexually immoral. God's given us marriage for that part of our life, for intimacy. And it's not to be experienced before marriage and it's not to be experienced outside of marriage, whether it's a real person or whether it's a digital screen. God's called us to that kind of holiness with our physical lives. And then he talks about men who practice homosexuality. And God just tells us that's not the way he designed life. It's not according to nature, Romans chapter 1, nor is it a part of his command where he made one man, one woman, and he gave us specific genders for a purpose. It's, It's not God's plan. And so his word points it out and says people can live according to their own passions and ideas and thoughts, but that just points out that we live in a lost world enslavers. I mean, you think about it. I, I think about the history of our nation and slavery and how ungodly that was. Taking people and forcing them in labor and in enslavement. I mean, that, that's here. I'm grateful for the movement of our nation and there's more work to be done, but these things should not divide us as a church. We're we're believers that we're all made in the image of God and that we're all equal and we love each other no matter our age and no matter our ethnicity and no matter anything. We're all created in the image of God. Liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. All these things are... You you cannot rationalize any one of those things I just said. Any one of those things I just read. It's all contrary to sound doctrine and leads us away from God and the plan of God and repentance is called for. Because sound doctrine is in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. It's a part... He he meant for us to to know Him, enjoy Him, and glorify Him. This kind of life that's just mentioned doesn't allow us to know Him, enjoy Him, and glorify Him. It's not in accordance with sound doctrine. It's not in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Paul said, I've been entrusted. I've been given a deposit. And Timothy, I'm risking my very life to give it to you. And later on, Paul does give his life. Remember the second letter just before he was beheaded? He was writing, I finished my race. For sound doctrine, Paul was willing to lay down his life and die. And he was calling Timothy to do the same thing. We don't know where our culture is going. I believe that if we put ourselves in a place for God to bring revival, things could change in Greensboro. Things could change in America. God can do something incredible, unbelievable, mind blowing, bigger than any one of us could ever ask or imagine. But we've got to come back here. If we don't stay here, we might win the favor of man, but we will lose the favor of God. Church, we gotta move forward. God, bring revival. We're getting ready to take the Lord's Supper this morning. And we've been talking about a heel worth dying on. Are you willing to go... To the death for Jesus. I I hope none of us will ever be put in a spot where it's a matter of life or death, whether we're faithful to him or unfaithful to him. But that day may come for you, it may come for your children, it may come for your grandchildren, and we're equipping the next generation for whatever they may face. And for us today, we've got to be sold out and completely surrendered to God and his word. And as we take the Lord's Supper this morning. My, my request of you is just to let, the God, let God search your heart. Where are you? Is there any sin in your life that you've just let linger, that you've not dealt with? When Paul was talking to the church at Corinth, he said, when you gather together, your meetings are doing more harm than good. And one reason was because there was a lot of division. They weren't united together. And there were people who had sin in their lives in the church. And it was coming out in their meetings. And he said, it can't be. So he said, when you take the Lord's Supper, let a man examine himself. So this morning, examine yourself. How are you with your spouse? How are you with your kids? How are you with your parents? How are you with fellow church members? How are you with people you work with? What 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 is it that God has been dealing with you or convicting you of that you've kept on saying, God, one day I'll deal with that. Examine yourself. God, if there's anything in my life that's unpleasing, would you reveal it right now? If there's anything in your life, would you pray, God, reveal any sin in your life? As we get ready for the Lord's Supper, we're gonna open up the altar today. It's going to be a little bit different. We're still in transition. The altar will be open if you want to come and pray. If you want to talk with the pastor, you can do that after the service or you can come to Guest Central. There are options for you. Uh, But today, God's calling His church to be His church. Let's recommit ourselves. Let's surrender all. Let's come to him and let him do whatever work he wants to do in our lives right now. Father, I I thank you for this body of believers. What a joy it is to serve you and to let you do your work in and through us. And I pray this morning that there would be a great work in us. That we would bring all to you. That we would come and let you do that cleansing, that renewing, that restoring, that renewal that revival that we need. God, do your work even now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand together.